Hello and welcome to Jared Radio. This podcast is aimed to advance education, study of the practice of law and legal rights. Welcome to the Jured Podcast, a podcast that provides juridical education through a lens of human rights over property rights. My name is May Jane M. April 28th is the National Day of Mourning in Canada, a day where we recognize the many workers who have lost their lives or have been injured at work. This year has been an especially challenging year for those workers who continue to do essential work in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. These workers on the front line of the current crisis include workers in healthcare, grocery stores, food processing, transport, delivery, warehouses, postal workers, and many others. Employers have the obligation to take every reasonable precaution to protect workers from injury and illness under the Human Rights Code and the Ontario Health and Safety Act. Under the law, most workers have the right to refuse unsafe work although such a step is one that is very difficult for most workers to take. Today, we will listen to a special talk on the subject of the right to refuse unsafe work hosted by the Warehouse Workers Centre of Peel. The Warehouse Workers Centre of Peel is an organization that develops resources to build community with workers and to organize for better working conditions. Our talk features Ryan White and Amina Hanif, labor lawyers from Cavaluzzo LLP on the subject of COVID-19 and the right to refuse unsafe work. We hope you enjoy it. Essential and a lot of them, they don't have the option to work from home. That includes the frontline uh, workers, uh, workers in the medical field, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, we have uh, grocery store workers, workers in the warehouses. They are all very important to fulfill the demands of the rest of the society. And we at the Warehouse Worker Center do realize the importance and appreciate all their efforts to risk their lives for the community. But at the same time, we want the same level of protection for these workers too. We totally understand that these are times of uncertainty and we, a lot of us are feeling stuck at the moment, but we are all in this together and things will go back to normal soon. We just have to be maybe a little patient. So now a little introduction about uh, what is Warehouse Worker Center and who we are. This is a non-profit center uh, sponsored by a Canadian Union of Postal Workers, CUPW. We are located in Brampton at 224 Rutherford Road South, Unit 4. This Warehouse Worker Centre is a place for the workers in the Peel region where they can meet to address their workplace issues, where we all gather to fight for the better working conditions and to provide all the resources to the workers in the Peel region. We understand that workers are going through, who are going through this uh, situation at their workplaces, it's, it's getting harder and harder. And there are lots of confusions and questions amongst workers as to what their rights are. 
especially regarding their right to refuse unsafe work. And, that, and looking at the importance of this right, that's why we have arranged this webinar. We will, in this webinar, what we will try to do is get some clarity on this right, how we can enforce employers to follow the safety protocols. And we will also try to answer the questions that you all might have. Thanks, Ryan. So I'll start off, I think, just with a quick overview about um, how, how we're going to deal with things. So I'm going to deal with work refusals under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So those are cases where you feel that the work you're being assigned or the work you're being asked to do is so unsafe that you, you shouldn't be doing it. And I'll take you through the steps for that. And then Amina will talk about a different way of having your workplace health and safety accounted for, which is accommodation under the Human Rights Code. So, uh, for example, any sort of health condition um, that makes you particularly vulnerable or things like that, then there are, are certain protections you have. A few just quick comments, generally speaking. This is kind of all for informational purposes. This isn't legal advice, though Amina and I are both lawyers. I think if this is something where you know you've got a problem going on in your workplace, certainly reach out to the to the uh, to the warehouse worker center because we will set up a time for you guys to talk to someone and kind of go through that in more detail, or you can always consult your own lawyer. But so this is kind of meant to be more of an overview of what you need to do, and certainly recognizing some of the incredible work that you folks are all doing now and the and the unfortunate situations you find yourselves in. I think it's very important that we talk about this. And I think it's also important just at the outset, you know, we've already seen, I think, a fair amount of progress in the last week or so in terms of what's been going on in the warehouses. Uh, and I think that I think workers asserting their rights and, and workers working together, I think can help push that along. So without further ado, I'll, I'll jump into presentation. And one last comment, when I'm talking about um, the work refusals, this is really geared towards warehouse workers. So there are particular workplaces in the province, long-term care homes, for example, or hospitals, fire stations, et cetera, where you've got limited rights to refuse work. There aren't such limitations on warehouse workers. So if you're a warehouse worker, um, this applies to you. If you're, if you're someone else who's joined the webinar just for information about a different workplace, you should just be aware of the fact that uh, it, it may be slightly different in terms of the rules that apply to you. So in terms of refusing unsafe work, um, this is an entitlement that comes up underneath uh, the Occupational Health and Safety Act. So the Occupational Health and Safety Act is a piece of legislation that applies to every provincially regulated workplace in the province. It places obligations on the employer in terms of keeping you safe as a worker, and it also includes rights in respect of refusing to do work that you think is unsafe. So in terms of, of what your rights are in Ontario to refuse work, you have a, a right to refuse to do any work that's assigned to you in situations. And you'll, but really what it comes down to is if there's any situation in which you feel that the condition of your workplace places you in danger, and certainly the COVID-19 outbreak, I think, falls within that category, then you have the right to refuse work and that there are protections that come about as a result of that refusal. And there's also a very specific process that has to be followed. In terms of the, the work refusal, you know, it's a, it's a bit different if, you, if you're, you know, kind of aware of things like, for example, how, you know, having to claim vacation pay or the way minimum wage works in Ontario. You know, this isn't set up in that same way where you can kind of let everything happen and then fill out a form. There's a very specific process that applies within the workplace in Ontario and you have to follow that or potentially face discipline. You'll see that I've got the first step uh, set out. While there are a bunch of different steps and while it's very procedural, 
it's not necessarily difficult. The first step is you have to report the issue to your supervisor or to any member of management, right? And just to think of examples of what that could be, you know, it could be something like inadequate social distancing within the workplace. It could be, for example, that hand sanitizer runs out or there's not enough hand sanitizer within the workplace. You know, one of the complaints we were hearing about before was uh, meetings at the beginning of the day or start times where there was a sudden rush of people and appropriate distances weren't being kept. It could be, for example, concerns about other individuals within the workplace testing positive for COVID-19. You know, those are all the kinds of things that could trigger this. It's kind of all very much dependent upon what was happening at the time that you try to refuse the work. But so the first step is just to tell a member of management and the best person to tell is your direct supervisor. And at this stage, all you need to have to, to make the refusal is kind of an honest belief that your safety is in danger. So it's a very low standard at, at this point, right? All it is that you just need to have an honest belief that there is some danger to your safety. It can't be a subjective belief. It can't be, you know, in the sense that, sorry, it's a bit, it's a bit confusing with standard, but there's a very low baseline in the sense that it simply can't be some level of anxiety. You know, you're going to work and feeling nervous. It has to be grounded in some sort of real threat. But as long as you have an honestly held belief that there's some threat in the workplace, and you report that to your to your supervisor, then you can refuse to do that work. So, you know, as an example, if you know you're having to to receive packages or handle packages that other people have been touching, and you know that there's a sudden shortage of hand sanitizer, then that's the kind of thing you could raise uh, with people. At the point at which you raise your complaint and you stop doing the work, your supervisor then has to investigate the problem, and you're entitled to be there for that investigation, and you're also entitled to have someone else there. The, the, the clearest example of that would be, you know, you probably all work in workplaces that are large enough that they have health and safety committees. So you're entitled to have someone, say, from the health and safety committee who's there or someone else who's been selected by the workforce for this purpose. You're entitled to have them there and you're entitled to be there. And you're entitled to, you know, kind of go to a safe place while the investigation is going on. So you don't have to stay there uh, on the shop floor and wait for them to look into it. Um, typically, it's sent off to the lunchroom and wait there. And you're entitled to be paid for this period as well. So that's the first step. At that point in time, then a supervisor comes back to you and will say, you know, either we've made these changes, now we think it's safe, or alternatively, we just, we don't agree with you. We, we think it was always safe and we're not going to make changes. And once that happens, then you move on to the second stage. And the second stage is where it gets, kind of escalates in terms of seriousness. At that point in time, you're, you're supposed to go to uh, the ministry of labor, uh, either the worker can call the ministry or alternatively, the employer will, will do that. There has been a sudden explosion of, of complaints. I know that you know, there was a recent uh, article in the Star about the number of work refusals that have gone up to the ministry level. It's kind of skyrocketed. There have been roughly 40, I think, in the last two weeks or so, which is a very, very large number. Um, so at this point in time, you go up to the ministry and they send in an inspector and the inspector will come in, uh, take a look at the workplace, and make a determination as to whether or not the workplace is safe. And there's kind of two options once an inspector gets involved. The inspector can either issue an order, right, tell the company to do something. That order gets published in the workplace. You know, it's something that you actually would see. And what you typically tell them to do two, three, however many things. Or alternatively, there may be no order that's issued. And once the inspector gets involved, you have to obey what that inspector says. So if the inspector says, I don't see any, any uh, issues, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to tell the employer to do anything, you have to go to work. And I'll, I'll come back to, you know, the consequences of that in a moment. But at that point in time, you have to return to work. 
Alternatively, if the inspector says, I'm telling the employer to take, you know, this step or that step, if they take those steps, you also then have to return to work. And if you don't return to work, there's potentially very serious consequences for you. So if you do make a work refusal and that work refusal doesn't follow the appropriate steps, then you could be disciplined. And the discipline you get really would depend on the workplace. We'll come back to some of the protections in a moment around that. But you need to know that you know it's not, not a right to kind of take lightly. Certainly, it's a very powerful right for workers. Um, but if you were to abuse it, there's always a downside risk. And if you were to, to, to ignore what an inspector does, there's a downside risk. If you disagree with the inspector, there's always an entitlement to, to go off to the labor board and to seek an appeal of that. The catch here is I don't know how long that would take. The, the labor board itself right now has shut down in-person hearings. So, you know, it's not the best remedy. Really, the hope would be that in stopping work, you send the message to the employer. And then if there's a serious problem, then hopefully either the employer is remedying it or alternatively the the inspector is. The one thing I wanted to close with before I hand it off to Amina for accommodation is that you are protected from, so I know I just said, you know, if you don't follow the process, you could be disciplined, but you are protected from so-called reprisals, right? So a reprisal would be the employer targeting you because you make this claim. So if you, uh, you know, are given an order from an inspector and refuse that order, that's not a reprisal. That's the, you know, that's where you're kind of back to the employer having the ability to tell you to do a certain kind of job and you having to follow that direction. But the employer can't simply because you make the complaint or simply because you, you make the initial refusal to, to, to do work, they can't punish you for that. And where that typically plays out on the ground would be you make the initial work refusal, the employer says, so this is going back to step one, the employer says, no, you know, we don't think you've got a good reason and then issues discipline to you. If that was the kind of case, you know, you certainly would want to come and talk to, to us or talk to the, the warehouse worker center, because that's the kind of thing where you could file a complaint saying, look, I, you know, I had an honestly held belief that this was a problem. Again, it's a very low threshold and that would be the kind of thing you could fight back on. So that's, that's, I mean, that's really the work refusal power. There's another issue. I mean, there's another way of refusing work, which isn't in the slides because it's so unusual. You, there also are situations in which a member of the Joint Occupational Health and Safety Committee can bring about a work refusal. I think that's probably something kind of more, I would say I'd only discuss it if that was kind of a specific issue that people were having in the sense that that actually involves you going to that, that joint committee with the employer and making a case. All of you, if you're working in a warehouse in Ontario, you probably are in a, a warehouse, sorry, a workplace that needs to have that kind of a committee and is required to have that kind of committee under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. But if there are questions about that, we can kind of deal with it. So in addition to in addition to the Occupational Health and Safety Act, there may be recourse for folks to to get some protection through the Human Rights Code. And under the Human Rights Code, uh, employers can't discriminate against you on the basis of various what we call protected grounds. And I think the two that are relevant in this circumstance relating to COVID-19 are disability and family status. Before I get into individuals with who are in an immunocompromised situation, and I'm hoping this is a situation that none of you folks end up finding yourselves in, if you actually do have COVID-19 or you are suspected of having COVID-19 in that you're displaying symptoms or, you know, you've called telehealth or your family doctor and, you know, they sort of tell you, you know, it sounds like you may have it, your employer can't discipline or terminate you for that reason either. So if you've 
got COVID-19, you've been asked to self-isolate or to quarantine, that's not a basis. Your employer can't use that against you. That is also prohibited by the Human Rights Code. That being said, a lot of employers don't offer paid sick leave that would likely cover that time period, unfortunately. But there are new changes to the Employment Standards Act um, in response to this particular pandemic that allowed for a leave that at least protects your job, if not providing you with income during that time period. So that's the situation if you yourself have COVID-19 or are suspected to have COVID-19. Now, a number of folks may have underlying medical conditions that make them particularly vulnerable to this illness. You know, we hear about people who are immunocompromised, people who may, you know, have asthma or going through chemotherapy or on certain medications that um, suppress their immune system. And for those individuals, that would technically qualify as a disability under the Human Rights Code. And so having that disability, you're entitled to accommodation from your employer. And that accommodation, that's something that you can ask for, given your particular situation where you're more vulnerable to the illness, to protect yourself. That can look like something like having PPP, uh, personal protective equipment. So, you know, masks, gloves, hand sanitizers, you know, that can mean requesting your where you work, your particular workspace, or sort of where you and your colleagues work be reorganized to some extent so that there's enough distance between you and your colleagues. Or it can mean changing or requesting that your workspace be changed or the way you do your work be changed so that you're not interacting with the public or necessarily handling things coming packages coming in from the public that haven't been sanitized yet. So those are just some suggestions in this particular situation. Accommodation can take any form. It's whatever is really needed to protect you in your particular um, medical situation. Now, when you ask your employer for accommodation, you don't necessarily have to tell them exactly what your condition is. You just, you do need to indicate that you have a disability and the disability requires that you have these modified working conditions. Now, employers are allowed to ask you for a medical note to back that back that up. And we know, you know, it's a difficult time right now with a number of people don't have family doctors and individuals that do have family doctors, I know, um, are having a difficult time accessing their family doctors. But if your employer does ask you for a medical note, ideally, you'll see on the slides, it would have listed, you know, the kinds of things that the medical note should include in order to fall in line with the accommodation process. So that it's first that you have a disability. Second, what the limitations or needs are that are associated with your disability. Third, whether you can perform the essential duties of your job. And fourth, what kinds of accommodations are needed for you to be able to do the essential duties of your job. So it could be some of the things that I listed earlier, or it could be something, you know, that your doctor feels is important to protect you in your particular medical condition. And so one thing that we should know is while employers are required under the Human Rights Code to accommodate, accommodate your disability as well as, you know, accommodate you on the other grounds covered by the Human Rights Code, they only have to do it to the point of undue hardship. Now, undue hardship is, it's an undefined term, but it is what's 
considered the legal test for these, these kinds of situations. And under the Human Rights Code, there's really three factors that an employer must consider when they're deciding if an accommodation would constitute undue hardship. And that's cost, outside sources of funding, and health and safety requirements. So, for example, if, um, you know, the accommodation for a particular individual is we have to build them their own bathroom. You know, I'm not saying that that's the situation here, but for some individuals that may be the accommodation that's required for their disability, the employer may point to the fact that this is going to cost X amount of dollars and they don't have recourse to outside funding to go and ask for this money or for whatever reason, this creates broader health and safety issues in the workplace. In terms of costs, it can't be something that's simply inconvenient or a minimal cost. It really has to be something that's quantifiable in that the employer can say it's gonna cost X amount of dollars. And it has to be something that, that is excessive, right? Something that's really gonna impact the employer's ability to operate if they have to pay this cost. It's on employers, it's their duty to accommodate, and it's their duty to, if they want to say that something is an undue hardship, it's their duty to prove it. That's just something to keep in the back of your mind. They are required to accommodate you, but there is a limit to the, to the point of accommodation as well. And then just moving on to the family status part of all this. So the employer also can't discriminate against you on the basis of your family status, and that typically comes up around issues for caregiving, and that includes both child care and elder care, as well as care for any other individuals that may be dependent on you, um, including family members with disabilities as well. We're dealing with a situation where a lot of folks are perhaps ill, not individually themselves, but perhaps their family members are ill, are self-isolating or in quarantine. Schools and daycare facilities are closed, so people have their children at home and may not have anyone else to to provide um, care for them. In those situations where you're caring for, and also where you're, you may have a child who is immunocompromised and you need to be able to keep them at home and keep a closer eye on them than you may normally need to. In those situations, your employer also can't discriminate against you because you need to be at home to take care of these individuals. The kinds of accommodations you may ask for in those circumstances are things like flexible working hours or you know changes to your shifts or being able to trade shifts with a colleague or things along those lines that allow you to be at home when you're needed and at work you know when it's when it is more convenient for you in terms of um, you know similar to what ryan was talking about with the occupational health and safety um, procedure if you think your employer if you've asked for an accommodation and your employer has refused or if you've asked for an accommodation and the employer has said this is an undue hardship, but there's no real grounds for them to, to come to that conclusion that it's an undue hardship, your recourse is really to the Human Rights Tribunal. You can file a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal, you know, saying that your employer has, has violated the Ontario Human Rights Code. Similarly to the Labor Board, um, I think the Human Rights Tribunal has also cancelled in-person hearings for the next several weeks and there's broader policy issues relating to the Human Rights Tribunal and its underfunding by the current provincial government and, and how it's being run currently. So it's, it's not an ideal forum really to, to be taking your complaint to. However, if you're not unionized, it is unfortunately the only way to, to really hold your employer to their obligations. I think that covers off the, the Human Rights Code aspect of this. So I'll pass it back to Ryan.
the, the one thing I was going to also mention that I don't think we've really addressed, um, you know, the, I think the assumption is that for most of the people here, you're not unionized. If you are unionized, it's a bit of a different situation in the sense that you've got a, a, some more options in terms of enforcement. But again, I think that's maybe an issue that makes more sense to deal with kind of on a case by case basis. So, you know, if you are unionized and that's part of what your question is, maybe we can deal with it there. But if you're unionized, then a human rights complaint, for example, can go through your union or you can also file your own. Certainly your union, your union would be a, a big resource there and your union would also have input into, into the Occupational Health and Safety Act and how it applies to, to your case. So. So there's the one question there from from Albert in reference to his mother working at a warehouse where they're not um, practicing social distancing and they've run out of, of hand sanitizer. So I mean, I think that's certainly the kind of issue where I think you could have some form of work refusal. But one of the things I didn't mention at the outset is, you know, you don't necessarily have to do this alone. So you can't file a work refusal on the basis of a problem that someone else is having. You have to file it on the basis of your own concern, but you also don't have to file them individually. So for example, and we've seen this down in the States with some Amazon workers, and certainly it comes up from time to time in Ontario, people can en masse uh, refuse to do work. And that's often one of the best ways to kind of come together by work, as workers and protect one another is simply to, to, to refuse on mass. But I also think, you know, that's the kind of issue where there's a, if there's a specific, you know, warehouse, uh, I think it makes sense to reach out to some of the organizers at the, the warehouse workers center. And we can kind of talk about a strategy in, in terms of, and I see Albert just had the updated uh, letter. I mean, I think that's something where you can reach out to the center and we can try and come up with some sort of a strategy for, for kind of confronting that employer or doing something. Len is asking, does the Human Rights Code also cover workers' requests for work-at-home accommodations for non-disabled workers who are caretakers for and share a household with an immunocompromised family member? So I think, think if you have an immunocompromised family member that needs to be at home and needs to have needs to be cared for at home, like for example, it's it's a child or it's um, you know, it's an it's an older person or an individual perhaps with, with a disability that requires care at home. I think that is a fair request to make, you know, that you're this is part of your family status and you know you need to be able to provide care for this individual. And so if your employer can accommodate you working from home, I think that's a reasonable request to make. So Ryan, I don't know if you want to respond to Renee, but just quickly for Simran, you asked, have you heard stories of people practicing either of these options un under COVID-19 and succeed? I haven't heard specifically any exercise under the Human Rights Code. I do deal with a number of workers who are federally legislated and have very similar protections under the Canada Labor Code as are under the Ontario, sorry, the Ontario's Occupational Health and Safety Act. And they have had some success with refusing work and a Ministry of Labor inspector coming in and finding that there is a danger um, due to a lack of social distancing. Yeah, in terms of what I've, you know, for what I've heard in terms of work refusals is a bit limited. Um, the Ministry in terms of the 40 cases or so that the, the Toronto Star reported on, the ministry doesn't report how those were resolved, just that those refusals took place. I, I know that there were two refusals uh, with the TTC where inspectors were brought in 
or no orders were issued. I think it was mostly around sanitizing the cars at the end of the day. But I do know the TTC afterwards, even though there was no inspector's report, did seem to take some action around that. So I do think that that companies are a bit vulnerable right now in the sense that you know, no one wants to get bad press around this. But what I was going to say is in a, in a larger sense, I think what we have seen is in the States more as being concerted uh, efforts by a group of workers. Like this is a bit different from, I think, so many uh, other kinds of workplace health and safety issues where it's like a specific machine that you're having problems with. You know, here it's something that affects everyone. And I think it gives people the opportunity to potentially um, do this en masse. And I think that's where there's a lot of, of power potentially. I think where we've seen changes uh, elsewhere has been where you've had these kind of mass work refusals, which obviously requires more work. And I think that's part of the reason why uh, I think it makes sense to potentially use the Warehouse Workers Center as a bit of a, a hub for these kinds of things. But um, so I, I, you know, I think it's, I don't know of anything specifically, but I do know that there's, I, I think there's some hope, I think that right now this could be a tactic that could, could work. Thank you for tuning into another edition of the Jured podcast. If you'd like to learn more about initiatives by the Warehouse Workers Center, including a current campaign to support Amazon warehouse workers during the COVID-19 pandemic, go to warehouseworkers.ca. You can subscribe to our podcast to access our latest episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. We plan on providing more Know Your Rights sessions to keep you informed. So please send us your comments to us by email at juredfoundation at gmail.com. That's J-U-R-E-D foundation at gmail.com. You can also catch us at Twitter at jur underscore ed. On a personal note, the Jured Foundation would like to honor those workers who have fallen ill, given their lives, and take on tremendous risks to themselves and their family to serve the public. Our very best wishes to you all and your families. I'm AJ Nam. Thank you for listening.